Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, featuring your host, Anna Jaworski. Our program is designed to empower the CHD or congenital heart defect community. Our program may also help families who have children who are chronically ill by bringing information and encouragement to you in order to become an advocate for your community. Now, here is Anna Jaworski. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of Heart to Heart with Anna. We are in Season 9 and our theme this season is Advancements in Congenital Heart Disease. Today's show is the Roadmap to Success for Complex CHD Survivors Part 2 and our guest is Dr. Gil Wernofsky. And he was just on the program last week talking to us about a roadmap that he has created. Gil Wernofsky is a pediatric cardiologist and pediatric cardiac intensivist. He has worked at Boston Children's Hospital the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, commonly known as CHOP, and Nicholas Children's Hospital in Miami, Florida, where he was the medical director of patient and family-centered care. At CHOP, he was the founder and medical director of the Neurocardiac Care Program and the Associate Chief of Pediatric Cardiology. For more than 30 years, Dr. Gornofsky has been particularly interested in the long-term functional outcomes following surgery for critical heart disease, particularly transposition of the great arteries, tetralogy of Fallot, and forms of single ventricle, such as hypoplastic left heart syndrome. He was recently awarded the 2015 Newberger Bellinger Award for his career contributions to the field of neurodevelopment in children with heart disease. His career goal is to identify factors in the care of children with complex CHD to improve overall outcomes, longevity, and the quality of life through a holistic interdisciplinary approach to care. So welcome back to Heart to Heart with Anna, Dr. Wernofsky. Oh, it's good to talk to you again, Anna. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, we have so much to talk about, and I have a feeling if your schedule will allow, you'll be a repeat guest to Heart to Heart with Anna in future seasons because you just have so be, much of I would be honored. Thank well, you. wonderful. Good. We've been talking to Dr. Wernofsky about an article he wrote for a pediatric cardiology journal and his proposal to create a program of consistent care for children with complex congenital heart defects despite where they're treated, focusing care in a gestalt manner with a synchronized team of professionals following children's care throughout their childhood and into adulthood. So now let's talk about the number one cause of death among infants with complex congenital heart conditions is cardiovascular in nature, and it's the number three cause of death when considering all children 1 to 19 years of age. So it's good to see that once our children with complex CHDs survive infancy, they tend to outlive their peers with other complex congenital conditions. Can you talk to us about how your proposal for a roadmap for children with complex CHDs might continue to enhance quality of life and life itself for our children? Sure. What our hope really is, is that a, a roadmap concept, and again, I want to emphasize this is a starting point. This is not one that I think will be the long-term adoption, but it's a concept. 
will enhance quality of life, I think, in three major ways. On the individual level, I think one of the most important things that it will do is improve health literacy. And that is that patients and their families are active participants, knowing what to anticipate or what could be something down the line. And these patients and families become active participants rather than everything's okay, I'll see you in a year, which is the approach many of us took for a long time. The second on an individual level is a plan for wellness. How do we promote wellness and minimize or mitigate the consequences of surgery? And those are the things like exercise and sports and psychosocial health and weight and those sorts of things. And then the third thing that I think is equally important on the larger scale is if we collect data from thousands of children, this data will then contribute to research to make improvements occur more rapidly and more broadly across this country and many others. That was an excellent answer. The most common theme that I hear is why. She always needed um, a lot of attention. She had strokes. Even though it's a natural inclination to withdraw from the CHD community, I think being a part of it to help me be part of the solution. Heart to Heart with Michael. Please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern. I'm Michael Lieben, and I'll be your host as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Now I want to talk to you about something that you seem to be quite an expert at, and that is the neurodevelopment in children with complex CHDs. I saw you won an award, and we talked about that in the intro. Can you tell us a little bit more about the award that you won regarding neurodevelopment? <laughs> Thanks. It's a little hard to talk about that. But two of my colleagues in Boston, Jane Newberger and David Bellinger, were some of the first to investigate this very important area of neurodevelopment in children that have congenital heart disease. The background is that they were instrumental in starting uh, some initial research in this area. Some of the neurodevelopmental challenges that our kids have include problems with school performance, a higher incidence of anxiety and depression, things such as sensory neural hearing loss, post-traumatic stress, visual motor disintegration. It's not all of our children. It's just higher than the general population. And the original thought was that this was due to the heart-lung machine. That was one of those things that so-called made sense. But as Drs. Newberger and Bellinger have pointed out and have started an entire generation of researchers, I'm happy to say that they were my mentors and started me on my career path. We've learned that it's multifactorial, the causes that include abnormalities of the circulation during fetal life, as well as things that happen in the intensive care unit, anesthesia, sedation, long length of stay, and the list goes on and on. The challenge of neurodevelopment was probably the first to be identified after the challenges of survival. And that reflects a little bit on what you're accomplishing in this ninth season of your show, and that is to look at other organ consequences. You had Dr. Wu on a couple of weeks ago was talking about the liver. That recognition has really only been in the last five years, but neurodevelopment's been around 
as a challenge for about 20 years. And the group of us that are continuing to collaborate is called the Cardiac Neurodevelopmental Outcomes Consortium, or the CNOC. And we meet annually and talk about where to go with this. The Newberger Bellinger Award is one of the annual lecturers that speaks at this meeting. But recently, the CNOC has been working on a very, very similar roadmap for neurodevelopmental assessment, particularly in early life. That's incorporated into our roadmap. And the statement that this was important was published by Dr. Marino. It was a scientific statement by the American Heart Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2012. And I'd be happy to provide you with a copy of that for you to put on your blog. That would be great. This is an area that a lot of people are concerned about. And since my background is in special education, I wondered about this with my own son. What was going to happen neurologically, especially since I believed that after my son's second open heart surgery, he suffered a stroke. He was an infant. And at that time, the hospital where we were, they didn't even, to my knowledge, do any kind of neuro assessment. I'm sure that now things are different. Thanks to Dr. Neuberger and Bellinger and you and so many of the other wonderful doctors who are putting information out there about the importance of getting some of that baseline data. But I don't think that we can stress enough the importance of, like you said, it's multifactorial, that there are a lot of different factors that go into the development of the brain in an infant, and that even if things do go wrong, like with my son, he had partially paralyzed diaphragm, totally paralyzed vocal cords, and he completely lost the ability to speak. But my bachelor's degree is actually in speech pathology, and I worked on a master's in speech path in addition to deaf education. And so I knew that we could retrain pathways of his brain to speak, even if there had been some damage that was done. And my son actually took part in a study that was done by Dr. Bellinger and Dr. Neuberger, and he had an MRI taken of his brain. He went and did a whole bunch of tests to contribute some information to what happens to children post-Fontan. He was a teenager, and they were looking at teenage brains. And I think you're right. We need to be gathering as much data as we possibly can to see what happens. And they were actually able to confirm that he had had a stroke where I thought he did. And you would never know to speak to him now. He's a pharmacy tech at our local hospital. He's a writer. That's fantastic. Yeah. But I think that we were able to retrain his brain without problems. But I'll never forget the first time he was on stage. My older son was a thespian and he loved to be on stage. And so hmm. poor Alex got dragged <laughs> to auditions. <laughs> and then when they would see cute little Alex, they'd be like, well, why don't you be part of this too? And so even though he's very much an introvert compared to his extroverted brother, he ended up getting on stage. And the first time that I was sitting in the theater and I was in the back of the theater, and Alex stood on stage and spoke, tears came to my eyes because I, oh, I'm sure. I remembered that baby who had completely lost the ability to speak and all of the struggles that we went through with getting him to produce speech again. Oh, you brought up so many things, Anna, that remind me of the successes and challenges and wonderful outcomes that we're seeing. Not everybody, of course, and that's part of this whole process. The, right. the plasticity, the ability to improve in children is so much different than adults. And yeah. what you're describing is a reactive treatment protocol for challenges. What we're doing is twofold. We're doing what you 
we're 20 years ahead of your time doing, but we're also trying to proactively say, okay, 40 to 50% of children with complex congenital heart disease may need some additional help in school or may have challenges with attention or reading. And rather than wait for that problem to surface in second grade or third grade, we're getting on top of that by screening in early childhood. And the combination of screening and treatment is the future direction of research in this area. Well, and I think CHOP has been ahead of the game with this because I seem to recall, and I can't remember when I read it, but I think it was over a decade ago that there was a study done at CHOP. I remember this was specifically at CHOP where they looked at children with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And all of my listeners know, since my son has HLHS, that's a particular area of importance to me that I've done more research on than other congenital heart defects. But this particular article, and I haven't been able to find it, and I would love to know if you know the one that I'm talking about, they looked at HLHS survivors and they were school-age children and they looked at how they were doing in school and they were surprised in this study that the children with HLHS actually had very good outcomes and they attributed that to strong parental involvement and the fact that they were aware these children might have problems and so they did exactly what you're saying. They were preemptive (laughs) in their approach with the children. Do you recall this article by any chance? I think I do. I think I was involved in some of it. I believe the first author was Amanda Schillingford, and we sent out surveys to parents and teachers, actually, for children uh, with hypoplastic left heart syndrome that were operated on between 1992 and 1997. So I'm pretty sure that's the same article. And again, I can make this available to you and your listeners, Anna. But that would be great. Again, this was just when we were starting to recognize that these kids might have challenges and told the parents. Parental involvement is probably the strongest positive influence that we can have for our children, both medically and psychosocially. Absolutely. Well, I think it's pretty phenomenal, everything that you've done. You really have been a pioneer in this field. And we were talking about this at the break, and I'm sorry that my (laughs) listeners... It just means I'm old. That's all that that means. (laughs) That's not all it means, but you certainly have dedicated a huge portion of your life to caring for children like my son, and I cannot say thank you enough for all that you have contributed to the field because you have made some original contributions. And of course, this roadmap is yet another indication of how special you are and how much you are contributing to the field. It's pretty phenomenal. Oh, well, thank you. It's truly it's truly a privilege more than anything else. It really is. I don't think a lot of people understand how new pediatric cardiology is, but we talked about this a little bit during the break, that this is relatively a new discipline. Do you want to talk to our listeners a little bit about how the field of pediatric cardiology itself is actually a relatively new discipline? It is. It's fascinating. Being 60 years old, I was in the right place at the right time when I trained with Drs. Newberger and Bellinger at Boston Children's in the 80s. And I know you recently had a nurse on your program who's been in this field just as long and talked about the last 30 years and what's happened. Really, it's not a coincidence, but there were two or three things that happened all around the same time in the late 70s and early 80s. The first was the availability of prostaglandin. The second was the ability to operate on neonates and infants. And the third was, and many of us take this for granted, but we didn't have echocardiography until then. 
So prior to about 1980, 1985, children born with problems like your son or other complex heart disease didn't survive. Right. So in the 80s and 90s, our focus was on just getting these kids to live. So now we have 30-year-olds, 35-year-olds. And the goal behind all of this is to find out what the consequences are and then have that feedback to the current generation and minimize or delay those consequences. Well, that's a perfect place for us to take a quick break. When I saw so many of these CHG groups growing, I found family just ready to join me. Anyone who is a member of the adult congenital heart defect community can be a guest on our show. We have a great year planned and we look forward to sharing other interesting topics. Heart to Heart with Nicole and David, serving the ACHD community, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Hi, I'm John Montez of NBC's hit acapella show, The Sing-Off. In acapella music, it takes a team to create a sound that many will enjoy, just like it'll take a team to help my good friend Miles Schweitzer, an HLHS survivor. Let's help Miles fulfill his dream and make a big enough sound to bring awareness to congenital heart disease. Please visit him at GoFundMe.com backwards slash The Miles Project. Miles with the Y. Again, that's GoFundMe.com The Miles Project. This is for Miles. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at HeartToHeartWithAnna.com. That's Anna at HeartToHeartWithAnna.com. Now... Back to Heart to Heart with Anna. We have been talking about so many different things, including even the development of pediatric cardiology as a field and how Dr. Warnofsky is developing a roadmap for care, which I think is going to change the face of pediatric cardiology, at least for those with complex congenital heart defects. But before we get into our last segment, I do want to talk to you real quickly about something I had a chance to witness in Miami, and that is the Baby Blue Sound Collective. Can you talk to me about your band? <laughs> I'm really fortunate to play music with a bunch of my collaborators and other people in the field. Many of us who are involved in this field have to have some outlet separate from what we do in our family life. And for me, that's always been music. And I have found a number of colleagues in the field that are either congenital heart surgeons or pediatric cardiologists or cardiac nurses who share a love of music and the arts. And we formed a band about 2007 called the Blue Baby Sound Collective. And a number of patient and family groups didn't like that concept. So we changed our name to the Baby Blue Sound Collective. We've just finished our second album called Home Tonight Forever. And here's my plug. It's available on iTunes in time for Congenital Heart Week, the second week of February. All of the proceeds go to the Children's Heart Foundation to support research. So if you want to see some of your physicians in an alternative environment, feel free to download the new CD by Baby Blue Sound Collective. I love it. And for those of you who were surprised when you started to listen to my program and you've listened to it before and the music is different, this is actually a little bit from this new CD. So I'm really excited that I get to be the first one to promote the CD and many of you're you... Not half as, you're not half as excited as we are, Anna. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank you. 
Well, and a lot of my friends know that I was actually the vice president for the Texas chapter of the Children's Heart Foundation. So that's definitely an organization that is near and dear to my heart, and I wholeheartedly believe in what they're doing to promote research in congenital heart defects. So I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help. Those with congenital heart defects—it's fabulous. So tell us one more time how people can get the CD. Well, you can follow us on Facebook. We're Baby Blue Sound Collective. We also have a blog, which is Baby Blue Sound Collective. Blogspot. Com, and our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon. Com, Spotify, all of the digital outlets, and it's called Home Tonight Forever. You can just search for Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. One patient asked Dr. Tom Carl what it was like to hold her heart in his hand, which is the title of one of our songs. I was struck by an experience where Dr. Spray was asked. Dr. Spray is a heart surgeon at Chop. He was asked by one of his Patient's parents, what the child's quality of life would be, and he said, "Well, what would be important to you about quality of life?" And the mom said, "Will he be able to love?" That just brought and, tears、uh, to my eyes when I read、yeah. that. <laughs> and that's、uh, and that's the title of one of the songs, and the lyrics are particularly relevant. I think many of your listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Absolutely, and it's just plain good music. Oh, thanks. <laughs> you sent me several different songs to choose from, and it was hard to make a choice because I liked one after another. There wasn't one that I didn't like. Our horn section has four chiefs of cardiac surgery: Dr. Joe Turani. The Mayo Clinic, Dr. Tom Carl from Johns Hopkins, Dr. Hajime Chikawa, who is from Osaka, Japan, and Dr. Emre Belli, who's from Paris. And we get together once or twice a year to play, and it's really our privilege to do this for our patients and families. We've even had some patients and families perform with us, and two dads of children with congenital heart disease are vocalists on the album. So I really encourage、oh, wow. you to、uh, pick this up. <laughs> Yes, that's so fabulous. I mean, it really is a CHD collective. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Maybe that's what we should change our name to. <laughs> oh no, I like Baby Blue Sound Collective. It kind of rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and thanks for the plug. I appreciate. Oh well, I'm very happy to do so, and I'm glad you were kind enough to share it with me. I love the music. Well, I hope we make tons of money for research. That's really the goal. Yeah, me too. That would be fabulous. Well, let's go back to what we were talking about as far as your roadmap, and let us know what parents and survivors can do to help you with your mission. Is there something that my listeners outside the USA and inside the USA can do to help their doctors adopt this program? I think that's such a important question and point, and I'm really glad you asked the question, Anna. As I've mentioned a couple times in this episode and the last one, the the general field of medicine, fortunately, has moved from a paternalistic approach where the doctor says this is what we need to do, and the patient or the family just nods in agreement. There's much more involvement, as there should be, with patients and families. I learn something from my patients and families every time I have an office visit or see them in the ICU, and it's this partnership that I think is so important. So my hope is that. Physicians who take care of children with congenital heart disease in the ambulatory setting, the outpatient setting, learn about the concept of standardized screening. 
We actually were going to call it the STARS program, which is Standardized Testing and Routine Surveillance. But there's so many acronyms these days that we went with the roadmap. And I think that physicians will learn about it in two ways. They'll learn about it by reading journals and going to meetings and seeing what happens in other diseases, as we've talked about cancer and cystic fibrosis and whatnot. But it would also be helpful, I think, if parents download the article, read it, bring it to their physicians, ask their physicians what they think. And if the physicians don't adopt the exact program, that's fine. That's excellent. But I think the physicians can then say, this is what we're planning to do in three years, five years, 10 years. And that will allay some of their fears. And you can anticipate what's coming down the line. That's so important. I think the autonomy that patients and parents are feeling now as far as their children's health care is at an all-time high. As it should be. But I think that it's because of younger doctors like you. You keep saying you're so old, but actually you're a young doctor in a lot of ways, especially the way that you think and the approaches that you use with your patients. <laughs> That's the best thing I've heard today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Anna. I'm young at heart. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I just remember when my son was an infant and we went to have his first surgery, his cardiothoracic surgeon could have been his cardiologist's son. You know, there was that much of a difference in ages uh -huh. and their approaches were totally different. The older cardiologist had a much more paternalistic approach. He did not appreciate all my questions, as I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> Whereas my son's surgeon, who is really only, I think, a year or two older than me, was very open and willing to discuss research with me, and he understood my concerns. There's something to be said for having the younger doctors, like you and my son's surgeon, who are willing to talk to the parents, to understand our concerns, and not treat us like children where you just pat us on the head. We know what's best for you. Just go on. Just trust us. I don't know that there's that kind of trust. Yes. Fortunately, that's changing. But to be honest, there is some soothing or beneficial effect to say, yes, we know what we're doing, but it can't end right. there. It has to be an open discussion and we have to answer questions. And in medicine in the States these days, we have become increasingly pressured for time. I mean, these are the realities that we deal with. But I would emphasize to your listeners, ask and ask again and ask again. Mm -hmm. And if you're not getting the responses that you need, then there are alternative ways to get that information through shows like this and through the web and, and getting second opinions. I think that's really valuable. What is the number one thing that you have learned being a cardiologist for as long as you have, as far as the care of those with complex congenital heart defects? And what pearl of wisdom would you like to share with us? I think, I think where certainly my philosophical aha moment was going from the concept of worry to the concept of optimism. That at the very beginning, we talked about exercise restrictions, and now we talk about exercise prescriptions. Mm -hmm. We were concerned about neurodevelopmental outcomes. We're now looking at these proactively to minimize them. We were concerned about endocarditis, and we spent a lot of time in our office visits talking about prophylaxis and dental work. And that happens one in 100,000 people, but we worried a lot of families unnecessarily. So I think the shift for me and the most important thing I've learned is to be optimistic, realistic, but optimistic about these outcomes, and to 100% partner with the moms and dads. And now with the adults. 
That's correct. Well, that, that goes beyond my level of expertise. You know, it used to be at the beginning when we first met, we all felt that I would always be your child's doctor. There's no question my patients will outlive me now. And we need a plan for transitioning them to someone who's going to deal with things like pregnancy and gout and other medical things that at me as a pediatrician, I have no idea yeah. about. Yeah, I love that. I love the optimism. I love the fact that it is a collaborative effort right now. And your roadmap is an excellent prescription, really, for everyone to bring to their doctors and say, have you read this? Have you heard about this? This is the kind of program that I want for my child or I want for myself if they're an adult. I think that the roadmap shouldn't yes. stop when a person enters college. I'm really glad you brought that up. The Adult Congenital Heart Association, in partnership with Adult Congenital Heart Disease Physicians, are a bit ahead of the game, actually, as to where we are in children. And they have recently come up with guidelines for routine screening or standardized testing and surveillance in adults with complex and less complex congenital heart disease. Our hope is that when we transition and transfer children and young adolescents to their adult providers, we then give them a comprehensive, this is what's happened in the last 18 years. You can now start to look after this young adult with a good background and consistent background of information. I love that. And if we can do that, we won't lose children to follow-up care as they become adults. And our adults won't be presenting in the emergency rooms with horrible outcomes because they didn't follow up with their care for a decade. We'll also have young adults presenting to their cardiologists saying, I had an arterial switch for transposition with a ventricular septal defect rather than I had a scar, they told me I was fixed. Right, <laughs> right. Oh my goodness, that has been a common theme on this program is that I interview adults and they say, well, I know I have this scar. I didn't know exactly what my heart defect was, and I thought I was fixed. I have heard that over and over again with people with all kinds of heart defects. That was the unintended consequence of paternalistic medicine. Right. Right? I give my patients a test. When they come in at 12 or 14, they have to name what they have. When they're 14 or 15, they have to be able to draw it. Oh, wow. The patient has to be able to get involved in this. Now, some of the drawings are pretty... Uh, creative, I guess would be the way to say it. <laughs> but again, involving the child in this process then makes them an involved adult. And I think that's a really good point that you can't wait until they're adults to involve them in their care. They need to be involved, maybe not from the get-go as infants. There's always so much they can understand, but certainly by the time they're school age, they're old enough to understand so I think it's one of those conversations that you can't have it for five or 10 minutes in a doctor's office once and expect it to stick. Exactly. Exactly. You know, the adults use this thing called a passport, and mm -hmm. I think it's exactly the right concept. We've been talking a lot about how the progress has been made in the field and technology and computers and everything else. Look how we've gone from a medic alert bracelet to the ability for young adults like your son to even have a blog or right. some computerized record of what's happened to them so that, God forbid, there's a problem where they move to a different city and they need to find a new doctor, they're able to present them with all this information that's generated by a roadmap. Right. When I sent Alex to college, or 
didn't send when I took him to college in New York, which is over a thousand miles away from where we live here in Texas. How hard was that was, for you? Oh my. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was unbelievably difficult, but I'm lucky that he has an awesome cardiologist and we were able to find a fabulous team for him up in New York. And let's talk about technology. I was able to bring a thumb drive that had his latest echo all of his surgical notes from the last surgery he had had. So he had had some pretty complex procedures done. I had all of that on a thumb drive that I was able to give to a cardiologist in New York. And how wonderful is that, that we have the ability to bring this kind of information that would have been kind of difficult to do 20 or 30 years ago, don't you think? Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I would emphasize to everyone on the show that your child's or your medical records are yours, not the hospitals, not the doctors. They keep them and you have to sign consent to get them, but they are yours. And I would strongly recommend for people that you start to make a collection. I remember the families that used to come in with binders, which is fantastic. Yeah. I, I have one of those <laughs> oh, <laughs> too, actually. Anna, that, that's so 80s. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now people come in with a, with a thumb drive or keep a thumb drive at yeah. home, and that's the way it should be. Right, right. But I do have everything printed out because once upon a time, they didn't have this electronically. That's so right. it's important to have the information. Like you said, it is your information, and I do think it's important. I think this roadmap is an excellent idea. I hope it catches on like wildfire. Thank you. I hope this is the kind of program that we see and people think it has always been in place because it makes so much sense and it's such a great collaborative effort. Thank you so much for sharing it with me and my listeners. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's really a privilege to talk to you and your listeners. And I appreciate feedback, both positive and negative. And Anna knows how to get a hold of me. And I'll be looking on the blog to answer anybody's questions. That would be great. Well, that concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. Please find and like us on Facebook. And wherever you are, my friends, remember, you are not alone. Enjoy the music. Absolutely. And don't forget to go buy it at iTunes. <laughs> Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time.